Welcome to Over the Rainbow, the podcast where we attempt to answer all of those questions about colour we've all asked late at night, perhaps after a few hours of lager. My name is Stephen Westland and I'll be joined in these sessions by Hugh Owens and Helen Disley. So this is our third podcast in the series and we're going to talk about whether the colour red uh, makes the heartbeat faster. And in fact, we're going to try and cover quite a few sort of health and well-being related things, but it's a really big topic, so we'll just uh, scratch the surface. Um, we chatted about animal and human vision in the first two podcasts. If you miss those, you can hear them at swestland.podbean.com. But just before we leave colour vision, we've received a question from the listeners, and it is... What sort of colour vision would a unicorn have? And we all have our areas of expertise, but I know, Hugh, you're a big Harry Potter fan. <laughs> it's probably something you can... It's probably something you can uh, trip off your tongue. So what colour vision do you think a unicorn would have if they existed, which, of course, they do? Well, that's a fantastic question. It is. And I'd love to thank the listener <laughs> for posing that question. And, of course... It depends what we're talking about, because I think a unicorn wouldn't just see the colours that we can see. Uh They'd see all of the emotions attached to those colours as well and gravitate towards the people who needed their love the most. That's a brilliant answer, because I was simply going to say they're like a horse. (laughs) 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 They're dichromats. They're dichromats and they're red-green colourblind. That's um, a good answer. that, that, That is why we have three of us to have these... Variety of opinions. Um, <laughs> I, hope the listeners satisfied with that. And actually, now is a good time for me to bring in my my uh, little known unicorn facts. I have two unicorn oh, yes. facts, both crazy in my opinion. One is that unicorns. Well, some people say they don't exist, and if they don't, mm-hmm. why do we have a collective noun for unicorns? Did you know we have one? A blessing of unicorns. It actually exists, blessing. yeah. A blessing oh. of unicorns is a collective noun. If, if I had to guess, I would have said fictional it would a, uni, a, u, a uniform of unicorns. Very smart. Like and the other thing, which I was really surprised to find the, out... A, a unity. unity. A unity, unity of unicorns. Is that essentially yeah, nice. the national animal of Scotland is a unicorn. No. Yeah. And if you look at our... We have, like, our national royal coat of arms, and there's a... A lion at one side represents England, and the other one is a unicorn. And since like the mid 1400s or something, there's been a unicorn. It's a power of um, purity and uh, sorry, a symbol of um, purity and power. And, and all the kings of Scotland have had it as their national animal. And I just hope you're right, otherwise we're going to be getting quite a few um, listener complaints. Never mind so listener I've questions. heard. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Ah, yes. So, so we've heard. So we've heard. So, OK, let's get to the main topic. So um, I, I wanted to start with this question of um, the effect of colour on heart rate and uh, blood pressure. Have, have you looked at that at all, Hugh, in, in your studies or not? Obviously, I've seen some evidence that light and colour will have a physiological mm impact on different people the one that springs to mind that that makes me smile slightly is is the the norwich city painting of their changing room to be uh, pink 
um, and they they kind of followed a couple of the the American institutions with this this idea that somehow pink would lower testosterone levels. I think they did this in twenty. Is this for the is this for the visiting side? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So okay. uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So they they painted the opposition's dressing room this deep pink, which is supposed to have this calming effect on people. So that goes back quite a long way, that idea. So there's something called drunk tank pink. Mm. In the 70s in the States, I think they painted the inside of some jail cells pink. Um, So you had people who on certain hallucinogenic drugs and maybe a little bit violent and the pink would calm them down and allegedly make them a little bit weaker. Um, less less aggressive, and then we had a. I saw a story of a jail in Texas making um, the inmates wear pink uniforms. So there's there's quite a lot of studies on that sort of stuff, and I I also came across some work about the color pink um, could actually decrease your your strength. So they they use a, a sort of device you hold in your hand like a tensile tester, so you pull it, and it was in quite a respectable journal saying that this there could be an effect but this idea Hugh that the colour of a changing room could affect um, a, a team for example um, it is it is quite widespread um, and th- there's there's not enough studies in that in that in that field I think to come to a definitive con- conclusion is there it's interesting because if you, if you look at, at what different academics are saying some people are just saying it's completely based on the psychology. It has this effect um, not because it's physiological, but because it's based on childhood experience. So it, it, it is difficult to untangle such complex ideas that, that a particular hue or shade might have this physiological influence on your body. No, it's, it's true. And um, the reason I'm interested in talking about the colour of red in particular is it's, it's one of those things you can find widely cited on the internet as, as if it's absolute fact. And if you speak to some people about it, they'll say, well, of course it's true. Everybody knows it's true. Red makes the heart beat faster. But in fact, I had a student who looked into this um, a few years ago, and uh, we, we did a literature review first. It turns out the evidence for this is incredibly sparse. There's very, very little. There's a PhD thesis from California, which I can't get hold of, from 1950, which allegedly has some evidence. There's a paper in 1974 um, showing that red um, made the heart beat faster in some children, but they were children who were um, had some uh, difficulties, learning difficulties. Um, there's very little evidence, actually, yeah, it's one of those things which is quoted over and over again. And, and when we did our study, we found that people who were exposed to red lighting did in fact have higher blood pressure and higher heart rate. However, it was statistically not mm. significant. <laughs> so we couldn't conclude that there was a, a finding. Um, and the problem is, I think, if the effect exists... It's really. I, I suspect it does exist, by the way, but it's really small. It might raise your blood pressure by you know half a beat per minute or something like that, compared to say green. 
Um, so it's very hard to reliably detect it because you need huge studies of like 200 or plus people to do it. Um, so the interesting thing is that even though there's been this long interest in colour for hundreds of years, you would think that something like, does looking at red make the heartbeat faster? You would think that that's been resolved decades ago. But as far as I can see, it, it hasn't been. It's, it's, still, it's still an open question as far as I'm concerned. And you still occasionally see various research papers addressing it, um, but usually there are some sort of design flaws and you say, well, I'm not sure whether that's... that's um... I saw one study, for example, where they put people in a, um, in a, in a shopping, a shopping centre, or Americans would say a shopping mall, wouldn't they? And they measured their heart rate and their blood pressure and then they put them inside a room with blue lighting and let them sit down. And, and guess what? After 10 minutes, their heart rate had reduced, and so their blood pressure. But that's simply because they've been sat down in a, in a quiet space. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a totally uncontrolled experiment. It's really hard to find very well-done papers that show a really clear effect of the effect of um, colour on, on heart rate. But I, I think the, the interesting thing is, is that there are other um, areas where there is definitive uh, work that's been done. And, and the first one I'd like to suggest is the treatment of seasonal affective disorder. So this is something we are likely to have quite a lot in the UK because it's basically a type of depression that exists um, only in the winter and it's because we don't get very much light in the mornings. And since at least 40 years ago, this has been treated with a very, very bright light. Uh, sometimes a white light, sometimes a slightly bluish light. And in fact, I have a PhD student now looking to see whether a bluish light is actually better than a whitish light. We, we've got some evidence to think it might be, or some reason to think it might be. And I've seen one very respectable journal paper saying the treatment of seasonal affective disorder with light therapy is about as effective as antidepressants, which is pretty mm. incredible. So there are real, I, mean, I, I guess you could still say, Hugh, that could be, could be psychological, could be physiological, but there are reasons to think it could be physiological. And perhaps it's a good time to ask you, Hugh, to tell us about um, the... Uh, the topic you raised a few weeks ago, which is called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I, I just got it out, I think. <laughs> well, before I, I jump into that, because it is obvious that there is some physiological response to light. Even if we go outside and we just tan our skins, the melanin in our skins, that there's a physical um mechanism happening there and there is a certain amount of evidence that suggests there's a change in um, things like uh, skin conduction and heart rate um, and the emotional uh, effect on on the observer themselves as well they seem to be related to particular hues but whether that's a physical thing or a psychological thing that's quite tricky 
what I was going to say before you finished talking about seasonal affective disorder was I wonder whether there's any impact between line sources and continuous light sources so that often we hear of things like sick building syndrome over here where we have fluorescent tubing which tends to have peak emissions of of um, light at particular wavelengths or at particular colors if you like whereas it seems that treatments for seasonal affective disorder uh, seem to look at intensity of the light, but also a broad spectrum of light as well. I just wondered if you had any, any comments on that. Yeah, I, I think that one of, the, one of the reasons for sick building syndrome with fluorescent lights is, is to do with flicker. Mm. I mean, that's what, one of the issues. Flicker is, is not very good. And, you know, LED lighting's got a lot better in that regard. But but I did a review paper a few years ago about what we call the non-visual effect of light and colour. So we know that light and colour allows us to mm -hmm. see things and see colours. But what are the non-visual effects? Yeah. Things like treatment of seasonal affective disorder. But when I did this review, it turned out the biggest non-visual effect of light on the human body is a very negative one. It is skin cancer. Uh, that's interesting. So that's a great example, yeah. isn't it, of a, a physiological effect of light on the body. Yeah. You, you could say a very Absolutely. common one for you is, is, is tanning. I mean, um, we can't see you now, but if we could, we'd see your... your... No, no. How pale I was. How I, pasty I, I was. The yeah. opposite. Uh, your bronze, your bronze body. Um, oh, so, so I guess that's, that's, that's exactly. very common. We, we've all experienced ta uh, suntan, um, but the, the the biggest impact, in a way, is is skin cancer. That's that's really growing in um, in uh, frequency. So I I don't know how we're going to, to to mash all this back together, but one really interesting thing I remember talking to a research scientist at a very large cosmetic company, and they were talking about aging effects. Yeah. And um, it sort of said the three three main things, if I can remember now, was was light yeah. exposure, that 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 was very detrimental. Yeah. Sugar, um, that was. I'm already in a bad way, by the way, with those two. So. <laughs> I hope the next. I know. I hope the next one is um, better. The same. What was the third one? Do you remember it? What was the third one? I'll see if I can. High speed race. High speed car racing. <laughs> Uh, what was it? I think I can't remember. No. It's, it's so the, gone. It's so gone. the two. But, um, let, let's recap. There the were two. Three. <laughs> the two um, things were sugar and light exposure. Yeah. Uh, light yeah. exposure. Yeah. So I, I'm for various reasons. I'm doing something now called intermittent fasting, which is where you don't eat mm. for a period of time. And apparently, that, according to some studies, has um, an effect. Real benefits, Real benefits on, in many ways, but yeah. particularly in terms of longevity of life, um, and also reduction of calories. Same same thing, mm -hmm. you know. So, sh sh sugar is um, the the biggest source of calories we can have. So, I know people can't see yeah. this, but it looks like Hughes at a disco. There's all kind of different lighting effects going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the tallies on. I haven't got any light on. Shall I go and put That's the lights right. on? <laughs> A few moments later.
So I think the first mention of these new class of photoreceptor, these melanopsin-containing retinal ganglion cells, I think they were originally called, um, we started to hear whispers about people finding something new. I think about early yeah. 2000s, and there was a science paper in about 2002, and they, they talked about these ganglion cells having this this uh, photoreactivity. Um, and of course, these ganglion cells make up what information is carried from the eye back into the brain and what forms... That the so just to clarify, has. Hugh, just to clarify that the, the cones we've been speaking about for the last two weeks, they don't normally occur at that part of the retina, do they? So it's quite surprising no, to find no, photosensitive cells in the retinal ganglion layer. And I think one of the the most surprising elements of visual physiology when students first see it is that the receptor cells and the, the various levels of encoding seem to be yeah. the wrong way round. So the, the cone cells are furthest away from from the aperture of the eye, as it were. Um, and, and the light ha actually has to make its way through um, an awful lot of other layers of cells, obviously except for at the fovea, where all yeah, that yeah. stuff is pushed to one side. But it was a surprise, I think, for workers looking at a structure that's been studied for a long time now to find a class of, of ganglion cells that were just responsive to light um, and took that information back to a, an area of the brain which acts a bit like a, a relay station, the hypothalamus. And, and in particular, just above the optic chiasm, which is where the two streams of, uh, of optic nerves are taken. The, the cones would normally send signals which terminate in the back of the head, wouldn't they? Yes. Which is, yeah. which is uh, where we think vision takes place, if you like, or certainly where the activity and the eye's vision takes place. Um, but you're saying these go to a central part of the brain responsible for, for what sort of functions? Yeah, so uh, it, it takes... There's a, there's a relay station in the centre of your brain, basically the thalamus, and we can chop that up into, into different areas. And it takes information from your various senses and integrates it. Now, there are big motorways type pathways through this this area and, and you've mentioned one where we take the visual information it's further processed at a, a, a halfway station and then it, it's pushed further back into the the visual cortex right at the back of your head as you said but that isn't the only pathway that comes from your eyes you, you have other pathways so for instance this was an interesting new pathway that they'd find that that seem to link into this small area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. A punchy title, if ever I yes. heard one. And this seems to, to relate to our, our state of arousal or circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a set of cells within that area that fire in a 24-hour rhythm so that at midday they're firing at their peak and then during the night, that level of arousal drops off again. So we, we can see that this seems to be linked 
to how we interact with light during the day and, and our various states of arousal, whether that be sleep or whether that be in our waking moments. They found this not only in humans, but, but obviously in, in other animals as well. So there's a, there's a really good example of how we physiologically react to the light that we have in our environment. Yes, yeah, so this circadian system, um, I once heard it expressed in terms of, you think about a dog, why does a dog go to sleep at night? What makes it go to sleep and what makes it wake up in the day? Most mammals have this roughly 24-hour cycle of waking and sleeping. And it seems to be now thought that that is entrained, I've heard the word used, en entrained, in other words, kept in sync by the exposure to light in the day and then less night light at night. And that possibly these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells could be the way in which the, the, the system's kept in sync. So in, in, the, in the morning wake up, we see lots of light um, that sends a certain signal to the brain, but then in the evening, it gets dark, it gets um, far less light, and then it's, it starts to be time to go to sleep. Um, the body starts producing different hormones in the evening to those it was producing during the day, which is, of course, generated from the hypothalamus. So that's really, really interesting. And, and what sort of wavelengths are those of those retinal ganglion cells most sensitive to? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's it's primarily the blue, sort of blue green area. That that was my, uh, I couldn't tell you in the exact band, but that was my. Yeah, recollection I, I think it's, it. I, I think it's about four hundred eighty nanometers. So this is really quite interesting because um, I, I really recommend to anyone listening, by the way, a book by the academic uh, Matthew Walker, I think his name is, called Why We Sleep which is really interesting. It turns out that having good sleep is incredibly important for health. So having poor sleep or insufficient sleep is a predictor of increased risk of a whole load of things, uh, uh, heart disease, uh, diabetes, uh, learning in children, um, obesity. And and of course, that means that there's a lot of, lot of um, reasons why we should sleep well. And in fact, when I was younger, I thought everybody slept well. Because when I go to sleep at night, I, I think about what I'm going to think about, for example, the next podcast. Right? Before I know it, bang, I'm asleep. Next thing, it's morning. And that's how I thought everybody was until I found out that some people don't sleep like that and don't have really good quality sleep. And it turns out that's a really bad thing to have. But the interesting thing is, is that there is the possibility that light could play a role in, in having good sleep. So, for example, you really want a situation where you have lots of light in the morning. So you wake up in the morning, you're exposed to high intensity light. And then in the evening, if you think about it, before artificial light, um, before that, in the evening, what would there be? Moonlight? That's not much. Candlelight, firelight. Those lights don't contain very much blue-green light at all. They're very red. So it's only in the modern age of artificial lighting that we're being exposed to a lot more light in the evening. And it's 
suggested by some people that this is one of the factors why people are not sleeping so well. And there have been some papers published to say that using your smartphone or tablet late at night, or late evening, or in bed, for example, on a very bright setting, held very close to your face, for example, is what a lot of children do, um, that that could actually uh, delay um, the production of various hormones that the body would naturally produce in the evening, which are essential for a good night's sleep. So there's, there's definitely some evidence um, and some, some theoretical framework for how light could affect sleep. And I think that same framework could also explain why having lots of good light in the morning, in other words, treatment of seasonal affective disorder with bright light therapy, which is, was done since the 1980s, but at that point we hadn't even begun to understand about how light could regulate the circadian, circadian uh, rhythm. It, it, there's now, it now seems that there's a mechanism for how that could take place, which is the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Yeah, and, and you're, you're absolutely right there in, in terms of what wavelengths or which wavelengths are activating that mechanism. It, it makes sense that it's got a peak of around 480 nanometers, which we know that when you go from your daylight vision or photopic vision to your mm. nighttime vision or your scotopic vision, that, that you go from um, a peak wavelength, which is longer than that, to, to the shorter wavelength of, of the night. So it does make sense that as it gets darker and our, our visual system shifts, that we'd start to feel less um, stimulated. Mm. Mm. So for a seasonal affective disorder... The fact that we're not getting good light throughout the winter means our bodies think it's effectively yeah. night night time all the time. So we're we're settling down and being less energetic and effectively. So in the morning, for example, sleepier. when you, you you can plot things like body temperature over time, and you can see the twenty four hour cycle. You can you can plot, for example, the release of uh, cortisol or, or 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 serotonin, which are hormones in the body and see that, for example, they get released in, in the morning, those particular two. And the argument would be that if you don't have sufficient light in the morning, then um, your body might not produce as much serotonin. It might not produce as much cortisol. And you can imagine how the, 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 the change in production of those hormones could affect your, your well-being, your state of mind, could even lead to depression. Yeah, I, th I think some of that's starting to be understood now. Mm. But as I said, uh, SAD, or Seasonal Affective Disorder, was treated with bright light therapy long before, 20 years before, these, this new class of photoreceptor was discovered in, in the eye, which is a really curious thing. They were doing the right thing, but they didn't know why, which describes our, our life generally, doesn't it, Hugh? <laughs> Absolutely. Doing the right thing, but not, well, not even doing the right thing, to be honest, most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm interested because you have tunable light sources at your labs, don't you? We do. Is, yeah. is, the, is, the, is that where the research is happening? Are you, are you tuning um, particular designs of light and seeing if those have effects on people? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so th things like the effect of, 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 of light and the effect of 
blue light um, on, on, for example, uh, the circadian system. Some of that's been studied. But what I think is really interesting is which wavelengths and also what's the threshold. So, for example, it's, it's one thing to say that using your um, smart pad at night in bed is going to disrupt your sleep. But it surely depends upon how bright it is and how long you use it for, which you might call the, the dose. You know, If you have it on a very, very dim setting and use it for five minutes, it's probably not going to do any harm. If you have it on its brightest setting, two inches from your face for like an hour and a half. So we're interested in our lab in trying to find out what is the threshold for these things to take place um, and also which wavelengths. So we did one study, for example, where we looked at the effect of light on the alerting effect in the body um, in the evening. We had people coming in in the evening doing this study, which was um, great for my PhD students because PhD students tend to get up late and, and enjoy working in the evening, so it worked out really well. Um, but what we found is we found an alerting effect even for long wavelength light. So that, that may be because there's a long wavelength contribution to this um, activity, or it, it could be because of a you know, psychological effect, for example. You know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's, there's a little bit of work on um, blood glucose le levels as well associated uh, with melanopsin. So, yeah, so I, I first got into this sort of looking at the effect of light and coloured light when I read the stories of um, from Tokyo in Japan where they basically put um, blue lights on the platforms of so many train stations in the Tokyo subway network with the intention of reducing suicides. And a paper was published saying that suicides reduced by something like 75 or 80 percent, which sounds really dramatic. Wow. However, the numbers weren't great, so 80 percent of a small number isn't many. And, and there have been a few papers published since, and it's a, it's a little bit, it's a finding which is slightly contested. And not least, of course, because there was no control. For example, it's not like they had a white light on half the stations and a blue light on the other half, and they could show that it really was the effect of blue. It could have been any light on the platform could have had this effect. But I do think it's really, really interesting, um, this, the, the potential use of blue light um, on that it could have that sort of dramatic, dramatic effect on behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there must be some sort of physical aspect to that i know there was there was some work done that looked at um sunflowers did, did you see that when they, no don't know that they looked at um how yellow you perceive the sunflower as being depended on the season hmm. so in the summer the yellow appeared a bit more greenish uh, whereas in the winter the yellow looked a bit more reddish so that hmm. that's probably more to do with the physical signal that, that's reaching you due to the, the the constitution of the light itself. So, yeah, I'd also heard that more recently than Tokyo, they've done some work in this country as well on train stations. So that there was a particular footbridge, I think, in Scotland that, that had a lot of suicide attempts over a railway line. They put blue 
blue lights yeah, on there. Yeah, that's right, they have. It's, a, it's actually a place called Stirling, which oh, is okay. a foot crossing, and they put blue lights with the intention of reducing suicide. Um, that's inspired by the Tokyo uh, story. And, and Gatwick Airport as well. The, the, the train station at Gatwick Airport apparently has a blue wash at night time. Yeah, and curiously, the intention stated there is to reduce suicides and antisocial behaviour. Yes, I've heard that blue can reduce antisocial yeah. behaviour, but again, I don't have any, any evidence of that. Just this... Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm always interested in, in the effect of colour and light and whether it can, it can do, things, do things which are really, really useful. Imagine if we could reduce suicide. That would be really dramatic and fantastic. But dramatic, dramatic claims require dramatic evidence. And I think the evidence is still is still weak that that effect is 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 true. Mm. Um, wouldn't you say that, Hugh? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're starting to get in this overlap between something that we can measure, and as as we both know, in science, we just try to constrain one thing at a time, just so that we can uh, identify what's happening with that. And in so many of these situations, there are too many things that alter the context of, of the measurement. That's right. And we, we can do controlled experiments in the lab for very specific things. But you imagine studying suicide, for example, whether that was even ethical to do it. But you certainly couldn't do it in a controlled environment because you just want to stop it at all costs. And therefore, those experiments are always real-world in, in real time and, and that, that means there's always more than one thing varying at once um, which makes it hard really, yeah I think it's really interesting uh, what you were saying before um, in that for seasonal affective dis disorder the benefits of a bright white light had been identified many years ago mm. but the actual evidence behind it is, is relatively recent mm -hmm. or the, the, perhaps the mechanisms behind it. But I think that a lot of people work things out. So, for instance, you'll find um, in TV and film there'll be a green room. And the, if, if, I, if there was no benefit to calming down people who are in quite stressful situations, you'd have thought that you wouldn't necessarily adopt that particular colour. Mm. And actually, there have been some studies, I think it might have just been last year, on migraine relief and green light, acute relief of migraines and also preventative work, but particularly on acute relief and, and a stressful situation in the green room before going on. So I will, I will reveal something a little bit about us now, <laughs> which people might not know, but Helen and I are brother and sister. Helen's my sister. But I'll tell you now something, Helen, you might not realise, which is I have migraine. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. No. Not bad. Not, some people have it really bad. But about twice a year, normally just after Hugh's been to see me, um, <laughs> I get a really bad headache. And, and I, feel, I feel physically sick. I feel I'm going to be sick. It's, it's a really debilitating yeah, headache. Yeah, yeah. And what I do to fix it... I've just learned some experience. I take a load of, well, not a load, I take some, <laughs> the appropriate number of paracetamols. Two. Uh, two, indeed. Yeah, I take two paracetamols. I turn all the lights off in my office. I line up all the chairs I have. I've got quite a big office. I line up all my chairs in a line. 
and I turn the lights off and I go to sleep. And, that's, and I sleep for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And after that, when I wake up, I'm fine. If mm-hmm. I don't do that, I will feel physically sick for the, for the remainder of the day or until I've forgotten that if you came at all. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so what, what, one of the things, I turn the lights off because one of the things associated with uh, migraine is, is photosensitivity. You become highly sensitive to light and light makes your headache worse. So what you're referring to, Helen, was a really interesting study, I think in the last 10 years, where they exposed people to narrowband light, like blue, green, yellow, whatever, who had migraine. And most of those lights, of course, guess what? They made your headache worse. Mm. But narrowband green light actually made your headache better, which is a really interesting finding. Um, and I can't help thinking there could be some connection with that light and the 480 nanometers that you and I were talking about earlier with yeah. the uh, circadian system. I think the two might be connected. But what it raises the possibility of in the future is that as we have now more and more colour control of our lighting because of the invention of LED lights, you can buy these things from um, any good retailer now, and my son's got one. Um, people can change the colour of the lighting in their room. You have the possibility in the future, if you have a migraine, instead of taking paracetamol or, or, or more extreme painkillers perhaps, instead of that, you just turn on the green lights in your room. And that's, that really excites me, that possibility that light could be used to make you feel better. That's a really, really good use of colour, I think. Yeah. I think there's... I there's sorry, go on, Hal. No, I was just going to say, I, I know that, that colour therapy has been around for a long, long time. I mean, you mentioned hundreds of years, Steve, but I think going back to like Egyptians and ancient Egyptians and Chinese, they used colour, different colours as therapies um so particularly like you had red as, as increasing the blood pressure well they were using red to stimulate the body and mind and increase the circulation so it goes back that far um orange is a, is a, a healing of the lungs and to increase energy so there must be something in it if it's been you know they've been, been doing it for so long but well, we've they, never, they... never really got to the got to the crux of so there is it... there is something in it but the difficult thing is to work out what's true and, and what isn't and that's that's where I often like to work I like like to think about where can we find evidence and where is there where is there not evidence so um, you know if you start talking about the healing effect of different colors of light on the body right chromotherapy sometimes called you're starting to get into things like like chakras and things like this and it's starting to become a little bit new age yeah um, a spiritual spiritualist, I think is the right word, um, and I'm a little bit sceptical. It's it's like, for example, I once met someone at a different university, I won't name, who believed who believed that if you passed light of certain wavelengths through water and then drank the water, it, different wavelengths would make you feel better depending what your ailment was. Right? I, I've not tested that. I don't think it's worth testing, frankly. Right? I think that the chances of that happening is... It's got to be a PhD in that, surely. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, but, but I think it's interesting because I, I started off by saying that there's crazy things written on the internet. You know, it, it is known 
that orange light makes babies cry more. Um, it, it's known that purple makes you more creative. But my argument is, it's not known in most cases. But it's worth exploring because the interesting thing is there are um, documented uh, cases of colour and light affecting our well-being and our health that have got hardcore evidence behind them. It's a question of just trying to separate out the wheat from the chaff, I think is the phrase, isn't it, you, mm. you, you use about your, your friends. The wheat and the, separating the wheat, wheat, is it the wheat from the chaff? That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. It's difficult because, as you say, you're talking about migraine, but it, it's a banner term. Um, I think it means different things to different people. Uh, it'd be interesting to know whether you have visual auras or some people just feel sick and it's a very intense headache. Yeah, no, I, I might not have migraine because I, I don't get the... Um, some people get visual distortion Yeah. and all sorts of flashes. I, I don't get that, so I've always said it's like a mild migraine. But whatever it is, it's a good excuse to lie down in my office for ten minutes. <laughs> and I always that feel, nice uh, yeah. pink office that you have. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And I always feel better afterwards. So I'm doing something. I, I I'm doing actually something right. get what apparently is called optical migraine, where there's no headache involved, but on the <coughs> towards the, the outside of my vision, I get almost like it's like sparkles. It's really yeah. disconcerting. There's there's no pain involved. But for about half an hour, or I can see like shimmery, shimmery effects down the side of my vision, and it passes away. But. Well, look, we we started off by saying we probably wouldn't make half an hour on this podcast. <laughs> um, I think we've gone over half an hour by a long way, haven't we? Um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. A so probably um, we've exhausted the um, the listening patience of of our thirty two listeners. Um, <laughs> that many, that many. Yeah, well, indeed, on a good day. So um, probably it's a good time to stop, and um, we're going to do another podcast in one week. Um, I can't remember what the topic is. We do have a list of things we're going to talk about, um, but we'll, I, because I can't remember what it is, we'll leave it as a surprise for next week. So until then, um, thanks very much for listening, and uh, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.